The holidays have a whole new meaning this year. Time spent with loved ones has never been more welcome. I can't wait to share my newly perfected bread recipe delivered in my Blacklock Dutch oven. And I look forward to the sweet potato casserole and pumpkin pie I'll create in my Blacklock cast iron cookware. Named after Lodge's original foundry, each piece of Blacklock touts triple season cast iron for a natural nonstick surface. The lightweight design has the same versatility we've come to expect from Lodge. Their Blacklock cookware is ready to help us make the most of the holidays. For their help in sharing family recipes and supporting this gravy podcast, SFA thanks Lodge Cast Iron. Today, people pay attention when a restaurant or a chef working for a restaurant does something bold and new, when they tackle a particularly thorny issue. In this American moment, chefs are social avatars. Our culture holds a lot of hope for what chefs can accomplish. As COVID-19 paralyzed the economy and wrecked the restaurant industry, Ed Lee and Lindsay of Kasich of Louisville, Kentucky, transformed their nonprofit, the Lee Initiative. Founded to create opportunities for female chefs, they moved quickly in March to transform into a cluster of focused efforts designed to address restaurant worker relief, drive racial justice, aid community development, and feed a possible restaurant renaissance. So here's the big question that looms. Can a chef leverage their influence to make a difference when it comes to climate change? That's it. That's the question. Is there a role to play for restaurants in fixing this dawning problem? I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Producer Irina Zhorov has the story. Karen Leibowitz did not expect to work with food, but... I married a chef, and we started a restaurant. That restaurant became Mission Chinese Food. She and Anthony Mint have since opened other restaurants, too. And in 2012, we had a child and started thinking more about what to feed her and what the impact of our restaurant might be on the world that we were leaving her. And so we did something called a life cycle assessment, which just sort of takes an inventory of everything going on with the restaurant in terms of greenhouse gases. So energy use, packaging, waste, transportation, and ingredients. Life cycle assessments are widely used to evaluate how products affect the environment. Karen and Anthony worked with a firm to tweak the process to accommodate the many moving parts of a restaurant. One of Karen's driving questions was, do restaurants intrinsically produce more greenhouse gases than cooking at home? And they found? That it was not as different as we had anticipated. But as she looked into where their contributions to climate change came from, where they could potentially make improvements, she was surprised by what she found. The real shocking revelation for us was that about two-thirds of the impact of the restaurant was coming from ingredients. She started to think more deeply about the ingredients her businesses used. Like, what about them was problematic? I had thought it would be energy or transportation or something like that, but it was really the farming. 
Around the world, agriculture is responsible for about 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Some researchers estimate that taken in its entirety, including things like fertilizer production, storage and packaging, the global food system might be responsible for up to a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. Local ingredients have become a standard shorthand for environmental consciousness, and staying local can have advantages. Fresher ingredients, supporting local farmers and economies. But it doesn't guarantee environmental benefits, says Stephen Hopp. It's sort of item by item. He teaches environmental science at Emory and Henry College and runs an environmentally conscious restaurant called the Harvest Table Restaurant in Meadowview, Virginia. Stephen says recently a hydroponic tomato greenhouse opened up nearby. He considered using winter tomatoes from there, but ultimately decided against it. Because in order to grow tomato, is it's a tropical fruit, and it wants it hot. And so you heat the greenhouses. So you're putting a lot of energy into growing tomatoes. Your environmental footprint doesn't justify so rather than put an arbitrary limit on distances he'll travel for ingredients, Stephen focuses on how they're grown. Do they manage their water, soil, fertilizer inputs, and manure in a way that improves the land or depletes it? When we deal with a particular grower or a particular farm, we know what their practices are. Karen Leibowitz started to think more deeply about the ingredients her restaurants were using. In the meantime, she also started an organization called Zero Foodprint to help other restaurants reduce their climate footprints. They started by offering life cycle assessments, like the one she went through. One of the chefs who signed up was Stephen Williams, who owns Bouquet in Covington, Kentucky, just over the Ohio River from Cincinnati. Unlike Karen, restaurants are kind of in Stephen's blood. Starting in the 1940s, his grandmother ran a diner in eastern Kentucky coal country called The Coffee Shop. But they only had one type of coffee, it was black. She made burgers, fries, vegetables, and stews. Coal trains and coal trucks would stop in front of her shop, and guys would come down and get a meal and a cup of coffee, and it was the diner in the middle of nowhere. There weren't any food distributors around there, so finding ingredients was necessarily ad hoc. I guess I learned a lot of it from her without knowing, but she got up every morning and went to each farm or each local roadside stand and got what she could and came back and turned it in or something. Stephen himself grew up in LaGrange, Kentucky. It's not too far from Louisville. Stephen says it was mostly tobacco farms when he was little. There was actually a prison behind our house that my dad worked at, and there was a ton of land all around it. I was an only child, and uh, all I did was walk around that property. And I think it was like 1,300 acres. And um, I just spent all my time outside as a, as a kid, and then camping and going down to the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. I've always been drawn to the outside. He developed a sensitivity to what it meant to care for the outside. I felt that urgency since I was in the fourth grade. I don't know if it was just my generation was like the first generation I started really pushing recycling on. Like it was actually taught in schools and stuff. And so it's just like anytime I would see my parents throw away tin can, I was like, what are you doing? Stop it. The urgency continued to build in him as he got older. Climate change scares the shit out of me. Still, when he started cooking, those concerns hadn't made it into restaurants. I don't think sustainable 
from an earth sense has ever been a top five issue for the majority of restaurants until recently. Um, I think sustainable from a business side and how cheap can I get something, how quick can I get it. Steven started Bouquet with his wife, Jessica, as a wine bar some 13 years ago. There wasn't really a menu, just snacks. But right away, he did things differently from places he'd worked. Every day, Steven would go to the local farmer's markets and buy whatever looked good. Then he'd figure out what to make from it. It just seemed natural. It seemed the right way to do things. I mean, it's why would I get online and click on a button to get something that's processed in a bag, frozen, sitting in a case in a warehouse for who knows how long, when I can go down the road and get it and it's just 10 times more flavorful. Eventually, he built a larger menu and farmers started coming to him. Like many farm-to-table restaurants, he prioritized local suppliers, thinking that would be a good way to attain sustainability. But when he got the results of his life cycle assessment... Uh, it was eye-opening. I think that it, it made us work even harder. Among other changes, like updating equipment, he expanded his suppliers from 20 to 30 local farms to about 60 now. Almost everything, aside from onions and potatoes, comes from nearby. But perhaps most important, he made a point to visit those farms, focusing not just on their proximity, but also on how they produce their food. Today, to tour Bouquet's pantry is to explore the agricultural land that surrounds the restaurant and how its caretakers work. The carrots, Darkwood Farm. Annie is the owner out there. She's, we call her like the good witch of the West. She does the most amazing produce on an acre to two acres compared to anybody else. There's beef from Sakura Farms in Ohio. They're just a high quality, um, high fat content, but they also you know, treat their animals right. In one bin, there's a pile of tiny lilac colored eggplants called fairy tale eggplant. It's about the size of a large grape. If a doll was to carry around an eggplant, it would be about this size. Hey Brandon, who are the, is this Mike? That's Chef de Cuisine Brandon Lomax, who's sautéing some veggies. You know, three, four times a week, I have these farmers show up here, and I get to have a direct contact with these people whose food we're cooking on a daily basis. Bouquet chefs have also become even more conscious about waste. Food waste is a big source of greenhouse gases. In restaurants, food waste means financial waste. So many restaurants are careful about what they trash. Still, it can pile up. Bouquet further limited what they throw out. All of our scrap, instead of it going into compost or into the garbage can, we try to pickle it first. At any given time, they have about 25 different pickles going. So you got these bright orange baby carrots that are just so crisp and full of flavor and have a lot of like terroir. You've got the ground cherries, which again, are kind of like a Skittle flavor. And they're also called husk cherries. We go through a ton of pickled red onions pickled blueberries, uh, pickled scallions. What else we got in here? There's pickled fennel, which I love. But how much can one restaurant really do? Can all those beautiful pickles move the needle on climate change? Karen Leibowitz's concern was that no matter how hard she worked to make her restaurants have the smallest carbon footprint, it would ultimately mean very little in the face of climate change's immensity. My work really comes out of that feeling of despair 
around the capacity to make change through my individual choices and and really wanting to make systemic change. Because without altering the systems that drive climate change, restaurants are treading water, just like the rest of us. There were moments where I felt like, oh, like, you know, this is impossible. I felt very down. And then I thought, well, I'm not set up for success. (laughs) You know, like, it's very hard for a business to, on their own, make good choices. And so what we need is um, ways of engaging that are not so hard. When we come back, we'll hear how Karen is helping restaurants play a role in driving systemic change in our foodways. But first... For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, every step in the bourbon-making process is carefully crafted just like Bill Samuels Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Reporter Irina Zhorov continues our story. In 2016, Karen Leibowitz and her husband opened a new restaurant called The Perennial. It closed in 2019, but during those three years, it was explicitly focused on environmental sustainability. Rather than use wheat to make bread, they baked with a grain called Kernza. Kernza is a perennial. It doesn't have to be replanted every year like wheat. And that allows it to develop deeper roots that store more nutrients, are more resistant to drought, and make for healthier soil. And people loved it, and they would say, how do I get this grain? How do I get Kernza? And I had to say, you know, it's not really commercially available. For now, Kernza mostly grows on experimental fields tended by scientists. It's pretty hard to find. I can showcase this great ingredient, but if it's not available to people who... Who cares? Like, if you can scale something up, make it available and affordable, make it the norm, then it's just a novelty, not a solution to anything. They had the same issue with meat. Beef is a notorious contributor to climate change, one of the most significant in agriculture and overall. But Karen sought out a rancher who spreads compost on his land and rotates pastures to maximize soil health. She says those practices counteract many of beef's carbon contributions. It's expensive, and if other people were doing it, then the cost would come down. So instead of saying, like, you got to just buy from this one rancher, everybody just buy from this one rancher, the question is, how do you get other ranchers to do that? Karen says her experience is sourcing with an eye towards climate change Help zero footprint evolve from individual life cycle assessments to thinking bigger. A way for restaurants and other food businesses to engage without having to like track down the perfect sourcing for themselves, but actually change what is available. Zero footprint does that by asking restaurants to add a 1% charge to customers' bills. That 1% is collected into a fund and then will be redistributed through grants to farmers wanting to implement techniques that trap, rather than release, carbon as they grow food. 
So these days, Karen spends a lot of time and energy hyping soil to restaurateurs. No one is more surprised than I am that I am talking about soil as much as I am. You know, I, I grew up a real city kid. But she's caught on quick. Basically, all life is carbon-based, but we've released too much carbon into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. But also plowing and the way that large-scale agriculture has been conducted is putting in chemical inputs that actually undermine the, the life of the soil. But there are practices that can really refocus on rejuvenating soil health. Things like spreading compost, sowing cover crops, not tilling the soil, planting hedges to reduce erosion, rotating animals on pastures. Karen says all these practices have a lot of benefits. One benefit is holding more carbon, but another is that they make the soil more resilient to the kind of extreme weather events that we've seen with climate change. Scientists are still working out the math on how much carbon this kind of farming can actually take out of the atmosphere and put back in the soil. But there's growing consensus that the environmental impact is important. Taken together, these techniques are called regenerative farming. Rather than depleting the land or even sustaining it, they are restoring it to a healthier state. We've really focused on this word restore because it is restoring carbon, restoring soil health, and it comes from the same root word as restaurant. So originally, a restaurant was a place where you know people's spirits and uh, bodies were restored. Um, and we're really excited about the way that restaurants can also be a part of restoring our food system, restoring our land, and restoring the carbon in the atmosphere back in the soil. Since 2019, the organization has collected about $80,000. That's with the dining-in slowdowns and restaurant shutdowns that have plagued 2020 due to COVID. The pandemic has been hard on restaurants all around. But Karen says she's been hearing from chefs who see it as a good time to reevaluate their dedication to reducing their businesses' carbon footprints. The existing pot of money will be distributed to farmers, mostly in California. That's where most of the participating restaurants are. It's not huge, but they're working with existing soil improvement initiatives in the state. Meanwhile, Karen says there's a lot restaurants and their chefs can do to push these efforts, even if they're not ready to add a 1% surcharge. The restaurant business really brings people together, and chefs often are kind of a connection between food producers, like farmers, um, and consumers. So they're like the meeting point where they are able to communicate to people where their food comes from and get people thinking about food in a more meaningful way. And so I do think that chefs have this amazing opportunity to change the conversation and change expectations. Stephen Hopp of the Harvest Table restaurant in Virginia says his crew has been doing that for a long time. I'm not trying to change everybody's dining habits. I'm trying to be an example of what something like this can be. He educates diners who come through, whether it's by floating around the dining room and talking to customers on a Saturday or being transparent about their sourcing. We used to have on the back of our 
menus. We had a little page and we would feature different farmers and talk about their production. At Bouquet in Kentucky, Stephen Williams has a similar approach. He's thinking about instituting the 1% charge that Zero Foodprint would collect at a new market he's opening. He's also cheerleading for the kinds of farming it will support. If you're that passionate about everything you're doing, and your team's going to be as passionate about it, they're going to talk about it. They're, they're going to tell the stories of the farmers. They're going to tell the stories of what we're doing to try to make a difference. And I think in turn, the people that want to change will start listening. Aside from the decisions Stephen makes in his restaurant, does his bigger impact lie in influencing how his customers think about responsible eating at home? Maybe. Nowadays, when he goes to the farmer's market to buy ingredients, some of his favorite vendors are sold out. He says his diners seem to be paying attention. Our farmers sell as much to our guests directly as they do us now. And 10 years ago, that just wasn't the case. Irina Zhorov reported and produced this episode. Thanks to Tana Weingartner for help capturing tape. Engineer Charlie Kyer assisted with the mix. You know who Wendell Patrick is? He plays Gravy's theme music, and we thank him. Jazar, we thank them for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to see our latest film, Radical Vision, about 2020 Edgerton Prize winner Ashton Berry. And while you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'd say like the dollars translate into the lard in the pan or what would that be, Melissa? I don't know. Maybe maybe the, yeah, I think it's the lard in the pan. The dollars are the lard in the pan, which allows the flour to brown and then you pour in something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hard work. Yeah. I'm John T. Edge. I'm Melissa Hall. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.